and everyone. Is everyone awake out there? Seems kind of sleepy in here this morning. You kind of groggy from the extra hour of sleep that you got? Well, if there is anyone that's about to fall asleep, you can get some coffee to my right in the room. You're welcome to take a, take a moment to do that. If you're visiting with us, I want to give you a special welcome. We're glad that you're here, and we're going through a study of the, the letter to the Ephesian church. This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to whom be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, there is so much in this passage that we could spend many, many hours on, contemplating, thinking about, trying to uncover what it actually means for us in our individual lives and for us as a community. So, Father, I pray that by your Spirit by your wisdom, that you would let each of us encounter this passage in the way that is most needful for us, that we would walk away with a sense of your presence, that we would walk away with a sense of your great, undying, unbending love for each of us and for your church. Lord, would we see Jesus as we encounter this text? We pray in his name. Amen. At some point in every kid's life in elementary school or early middle school, you begin to notice the opposite sex in slightly different ways. For a long time, they've been this strange, mysterious other tribe that occasionally you send over representatives to this other tribe, hoping that they come back alive. But now, the members of this other tribe are interesting. I'd like to know more. I need to investigate and at first, for boys, this means teasing them. It means calling them, calling them names and seeing what will come of it. And then you get a little more sophisticated. You think about what you have on. And maybe you even think about cologne. Now, that's a real strategy. And if you grew up in the 1980s like I did, and you were a human male, at some point you tried a little Dracar Noir or maybe Polo. Or maybe obsession for men. And this comes in handy because boys stink. I know, I have three of them. And in sixth grade, the place where I went to hang out with girls to investigate these strange other beings was the skating rink, which also stinks. Now, the skating rink was where I went each and every Friday night in fifth and sixth grade, and it was a terrifying and exhilarating affair. And I met this other girl from another school, and I fell madly in love with her. I took her to dances. I wrote her letters. I, I even bought her this cheesy little gold necklace 
with one of those Mizpah coins on it, you know, the ones that break in half, they have an inscription on it, but they only, you can only read it if they are together. Oh, it was so sweet. I was in love in a big way, and then I wasn't. I got to seventh grade and stopped calling her, and that was pretty much my MO for the rest of adolescence. Pursue a girl, get her to like me, then lose interest and stop calling her. But before I moved on with this first girl, I was, in mad, I was madly in love, and so I told her, I love you. Big mistake. Because even in sixth grade, we know that this word love has power. We've heard adults use it, and so we, we try it out in our relationships. But it wasn't really love. It was infatuation. And infatuation is fun, and it's easy, and it comes and goes. Love is much more costly. It's much more difficult. Love, of course, has emotional components. There's passion that can be involved. We can be passionately magnetized towards the other person. But you can also be repulsed, you can be angry, you can be disappointed, and yet still be in love with that person. What we learn as we read through the Scriptures, as we encounter Jesus, as we encounter the Apostle Paul's writings this morning, is that love, as is obvious to us, is more than just a feeling. I feel like that's a lyric to a song somewhere. But it's more than just a force that generates when the right circumstances arise. arise. And it's not sustained by simply emotional will or even the will of the heart. That love for a Christian doesn't originate in the heart at all, but it originates in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're connected with him, if his spirit dwells within you, you have a huge reservoir to enact the behaviors of love towards your spouse, towards your parent, towards your children, your roommate, your friend, the person on your street, towards your neighborhood, towards your city. Now Paul begins to describe for the Ephesians this prayer that he has for them. He says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. This reason. What he's referring to is what we looked at last week. That God is at work creating this diverse international community which is meant to demonstrate his love, his desire to reconcile the world and to bring sinners into a loving relationship with him. For this reason, Paul says, I pray for you, Ephesian church. And he kneels. He kneels to pray. Now, this seems quite obvious to us. This is the fairly common practice that we, we bow our heads, we close our eyes, sometimes we even kneel. But it was appropriate in Paul's day and in their practice not to kneel, but to stand. Kneeling meant there's something incredibly urgent about this prayer. There's a gravity, a weightedness to what he wants for the Ephesian church. This is urgent for him. He wants the Ephesians to know it so deeply. And if you pray regularly, probably this is one of the most revealing ways to discover what your chief anxieties are, what your emotions and ambitions are what your wants and your hopes are. Listen to your prayers because we pray these things. We all pray about things that concern us. We pray for our desires. And Paul's desire is what? What is urgently 
causing them to kneel before God to pray. It's that the Ephesians would be rooted and grounded in love. I don't know if you've ever been seasick, but I grew up on the Gulf Coast, and we would go fishing at times, go skiing, and if you get a little bit out of kind of the bays and inlets, you begin to have this rolling effect in the boat, especially if you're in a small boat. And I remember the first time that I got seasick, really seasick. It went from zero to 60 in like four seconds, and I began to feel woozy, and then I could barely stand. And once you get there, there's not really much you can do once you're already seasick. You just have to wait it out. And you wait it out for what? For solid ground. You wait to get off this rolling boat to get to solid ground. Am I making you sick by this? And as soon as you set foot on the dock or on the beach or whatever it is, it's almost instantly, at least it is for me, that feeling of wooziness and of seasickness just begins to dissipate. Almost as quickly as it came, it begins to go away. You're on solid ground. Now, Christ's love is a grounded love. It's not a shaky love. It's not a love that ebbs and flows or comes in waves, but it's solid. It's grounded. And the reason that we can look at someone with all of their faults, with all of their shortcomings, with all of their slights and scars, and still love them radically is because of what Jesus has done for you, because his love is grounded and rooted. And this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. This is Jesus' prayer for you, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. What is he passionate about? What drives him to his knees? Of course, he thinks about and talks about our ethics, our morals, our finances, how we behave sexu sexually. But what drives him passionately to pray for the Ephesians in this urgent prayer is that they would grow deep roots in Christ's love, in his trans transformative, incarnational love. It's transformative. You see with Paul, you see with Jesus, that it's not just this internal feeling. It's not just the inclination of the heart to feel or think a certain way towards someone else. Jesus' love seeks to transform the loved one. His love doesn't simply imply how he thinks about you, but it was a decision that he made to actively put himself in submission to your needs to walk towards you with mercy and grace. It was the decision to not strong-arm you into compliance, but to rescue you, to woo you with his love. You see, it's transformative. It's not just an inclination. It's not just a feeling, but it's actions. It's behaviors taken on behalf of the loved one for their good. It's transformative, and it's incarnational. It means that God's love took on flesh. That's what the incarnation means, that God's love, his person, takes on the flesh of Jesus Christ, that he inhabits our world. He entered into our story. He takes up our cause in a real way in history. And what does Jesus do when he comes to incarnate God's love? He sees the unjust, the unjust. He sits with them. He draws close to those who are sick. He receives the sinful. He lives with those he loves and gave himself to them fully. 
experiencing all of their joy and pain. He actually incarnates himself into their lives. I read a story earlier this week about Andrew Marin. I don't know a great deal about him, but he, I do know this, that he is a conservative Christian who decided to move his family into Boystown, Chicago, which, according to Boystown, is the first officially recognized gay village in the United States, and it's home to one of the largest LBGT communities in the country. Now, why move there? As a conservative evangelical, why move to Boystown? Well, Andrew, by his own story, says he grew up in a very conservative Christian home. He says of himself that he was a Bible-thumping homophobe, and he had three best friends that he did everything with growing up, spent every bit of time he could with these three people. And they all, within a few months of each other, came out as gay to him. And what did he do? He cut off friendship with them. He decided, I can't have anything to do with you anymore. Many years later, he moves to Boys Town as an intentional reaction against that instinct that he had. He's questing to determine if Jesus' love could truly sustain him in a culture where he was the outsider. He decides to ask a lot of questions instead of talking. He heard lots of terrible stories of rejection, and slowly, by adopting this posture of love, by incarnating Jesus' love, his neighbors began to slowly trust him. He was very different from them. His political views were very controversial. But at the same time, he became safe to them. And his loving presence, acting out over months and years, invited dialogue rather than defensiveness. And because of this, channels by which God's love and his grace and his mercy could flow began to open up. And people who had no reason to trust one another, let alone love and embrace one another, began to sit and talk and share their hurts and share their fears and befriend one another. He hadn't stopped believing in the Bible. He hadn't switched political sidelines, but his emphasis had changed. He wanted more to know whether he could be rooted in Jesus' love to the degree that he could demonstrate it to those for whom the love of Jesus seemed to be made so distant by his followers. He was incarnating Jesus' love. Now that's what Paul is getting at. Rooted, grounded, transformative, incarnational love. But how do we get it? It's one thing to say, that sounds great, to recognize it. How do we get that? How does it begin to come into our lives and change us from the inside out to where who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf becomes this reservoir of love that can be given to other people? Where a church determines not to love in the abstract, but to actively engage in the hurts and the pains and the needs of the city to incarnate Jesus in very tangible ways. How does that begin to happen? Well, Paul tells us a couple of things. He tells us a lot of things, but he says in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
Pray that out of his strength, he may strengthen you in your head, in your noggin. It's not what he says. No, he strengthens you by his power. It's his doing. And where does he want to strengthen you? In your inner being, in your inner person, through his spirit. Now, maybe you say, I've been a Christian for many years. Don't I already have that? Isn't Jesus already in my life? Don't, isn't the Spirit present? Yes and no. If you have an ATM card in your pocket, it's probably tied to a specific account, a specific bank or credit union. You have a membership in some way with that credit union. And you could have millions of dollars in your account, but it's, if it's after 5 o'clock, and the magnetic strip on that ATM card is damaged in some way, you're not a millionaire, you're broke for all practical purposes. In the abstract, you're a millionaire, but existentially, you're broke. You see, you possess something, but you are not able to access it. You're not able to experience it. And this is why Paul is kneeling. This is why he is urgently petitioning God, that they would know not just simply in their noggin, but that they would know existentially, that they would know experientially the ocean of God's love that is available to them, deep inside who they are, that they would be able to grasp it, to recognize it. And he's kneeling because he knows that this is a work of God, that this is revelation, that this is a miraculous work of the Spirit. And if we want that, if we want to be rooted and grounded in love, as individuals, as families, as a community, we have to have this posture. We have to begin to kneel, whether figuratively or literally, in radical dependence to say, strengthen me, God, in love, in my inner being. I've read about it. I agree with it. I believe it. But I want to experience it. I want it to be a reality that's rooted and grounded in my inner person. Now, friends, be careful because... This is a dangerous prayer. It's like praying for patience. Because you don't get patience by fiat, by incantation. You get patience by undergoing hardship. You get patience by experiencing disappointment and coming out on the other side. And so if you pray for love in your inner being, you're going to get difficult people in your life. You're going to get demanding people in your life. You're going to be confronted by your own prejudices and be forced to choose whether to follow them or to reject them. If you pray for love, you're going to be forced to choose whether to build your life around comfortable people that reinforce your own worldview or to actively incarnate love towards people who are very different. Because that's the only way we can learn to love. Verse 19, he says, this love surpasses knowledge. It means you can't just pick it up in a book. This sort of love can't just be studied. It must be revealed in the interiority of your heart, in your person. And God must, by his power, give it to you in your experience. Thus prayer. Thus kneeling. Thus urgent conversation with God. He says also, verse 18, that he may, that we, the Ephesians, us as the church, may have power together with all the Lord's people 
to grasp this love. Now, pastors love to contradict little pieces of the translation that they're reading from because it makes us feel useful. It makes us feel like the two years that we spent learning Hebrew and Greek were actually helpful. But here, this translation, I believe, actually improves on the older translations because the older translation says that the prayer is that they may have the power to comprehend and it's all about the mind. It's a very modern conception of how one relates to God and how one experiences his love. And so the translators here change comprehend to grasp, to grasp God's love. And it's so much better because when you experience God in the Bible, the Bible consistently uses this sensory language that the eyes of the heart may be opened up to see who God is. Job says of God, I've heard you, and now I've seen you. It's sensory. The psalmist said, God is sweeter than honey. You see, it's visceral. It's grasping. It's not simply recognizing with our mind. The love of Christ needs to be seated and rooted and grounded in our gut, in our core being, in our instinct. It's interesting because much of recent social psychology is discovering that we're not nearly as cognitive and, and rational as we think we are. That many of our decisions, in fact, some of our most important decisions are made precognitively. That is, previous to cognitive thought. That we go around in our daily life operating a lot by gut and by instinct and by feel. And that in reality, our cognitive thought processes, in many times, many ways, just confirms and defends the decisions that we've already just taken. That our desires, in some way, are molded by things that we don't fully comprehend with our brain, we don't fully even recognize. Now, Paul, writing as a pre-modern person, without access to this current social psychology, he seems to get this. He seems to understand. He prays that you and I would have this instinct, this rootedness and groundedness in our person for love, that our inner being would be rooted and grounded in love. And that's the work of miracle. That's the work of revelation because it involves changing you at the very center of who you are, that God would take a heart that's turned in on itself seeking its own good and comfort and turn outward and seek the good of others. He prays that we encounter, that we experience, that we grasp this love in four dimensions, in its breadth, in its length, in its depth, and in its height. And let me just briefly comment on each of those, and then we'll be done. In Greek thought, there were three dimensions— Paul gives us four here. He's trying to indicate the eternality, the boundlessness of Christ's love, that it can't be measured, it can't be put in a box and inspected. He says, first of all, it's breadth or it's width, how wide Jesus' love is. And how does Jesus demonstrate that? We see Jesus walking outside the boundaries of normal propriety. We see Jesus granting love to the unlovely, to those most unlikely to have received it from religious institutions. Jesus' love is wider than what people had experienced 
in his day. And we begin to grasp it, not simply as we, as we remind ourselves about the wits of, of Jesus' love, but as we enact it, as we follow and pursue that sort of wideness, that breadth of love towards others. How do we do this? We do this as we almost forcibly become more inclusive in our love, as we forcibly drop our insider-outsider mentality, and we bring people into our friend group that wouldn't be there unless we were incarnational, unless we were being transformed by the love of Christ. And Jesus' love had to be made wide to include you and me. We need to grasp that. And as we grasp that, that we bring a wideness of love into our sphere of relationships because Jesus' wideness of love brought us into his, then we, be, we can begin to tear down these boundaries that we've lived in. And it widens the scope of who needs and who deserves our love. It's wide. It's also, Paul talks about the length of Jesus' love, that he decided to come after you and nothing would stop him. He would go to any length to have you, to the ends of the universe in order to include you. That He would go to any length. When you come to a, a church and you're witnessing a wedding, the vows usually end with, till death do us part. And what that conveys is that I am intentioning right now to do anything, to go to any length to preserve this relationship. Till death do us part. And that's exactly what Jesus says on your behalf and on my behalf. And he actually goes to his death to any length so that he can have you, so that he can include you, so that you can understand the width and the length of his love. He comes not representing this scolding, difficult to please God that many of us think, but he comes saying, God is the lover of your soul, and he'll do anything, go to any length to have you. Then there's depth. What we see about God's love, what Jesus' love, what Paul wants us to get is it didn't begin when Jesus incarnated himself into the world. It didn't begin when Jesus became a man because Paul tells us in the first chapter of Ephesians that he knew you, he loved you before time began. It's astounding. Do you get that? Do you understand that? That God has placed his affection on you before you are even a person. That the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are conversing about you. Are madly in love with you. Are looking forward to the time when you are born. Just like a parent gives birth to this child. And as the child is growing in the womb, they're looking forward to that moment when they'll get to see the baby in all of its fullness. Friends, that's how God loves you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before you are even a person, that's the depth of his love. And then height. I've loved tall buildings since I was a kid. I'm fascinated by them. And I've gone to many places, Empire State Building, the Sears Tower, and I love just kind of standing at the base of it and looking up. It's almost, it's just dizzying to see that. Now, most of the super tall buildings today are being built in the Middle East. 
And the Burj Khalifa is almost twice as tall as the Empire State Building. It's phenomenal. I've never seen it in person, but it just towers over everything else, even though there's many tall buildings next to it. And what Paul is saying is that as you encounter the height of Jesus' love, as you walk up to it and you look up, that it should be dizzying, that you can't see the top of it, that it just goes on and on and on, and that there's nothing taller, there's nothing higher than Jesus' love for you. If you stand at the base for a billion years, as you will if you're a Christian, you will never scale its heights. That is what God is trying to tell you this morning. Come in and be loved that way. Be loved by love that you can never find the boundary of. Grasping that invitation, that understanding of what it means to be loved by Jesus Christ, now you're ready to pray. Now you're ready to begin to try and love your neighbors, your spouse. You're ready to love. If you wait until you fully comprehend it, you'll never begin to extend yourself in love. The way you learn to love is by loving in the way that Christ loves you. That's Paul's prayer, that you would grasp that. And we see that as we come to the confession, as we come to the table. So let's pray now for our time. Father, thank you for expounding for us the great love of Jesus Christ. I pray that as we come to know it, as we come to cognitively recognize it, we realize that that's so important, and yet we can't fully know it in our minds. Let us know it in our instinct, in our body, in our gut, in who we are as a person. Father, change us from the inside out. Change us to be more loving. Change us to understand and to grasp just how far you have gone to love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.